The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Brother Steve opened our class today echoing Psalm 90. Every man lives 70 to 80 years if they make it that far. Last week we had class, questions rose, we didn't get into chapter 25, and that was a kindness from our God. Today we get to talk about the power of God to overcome death. I left class, met one of you in the hall, and told me that Joel had just died. This week the pastor that married Teresa and I, nearly 23 years ago, garage explosion, died. A mother figure in Teresa's life when she was growing up lost her battle to cancer. Friday morning I woke up, it was my, eight, my daughter's 18th birthday, oldest daughter's. Took her to breakfast like I do for all my kids on their birthday date. And it's delightful. All this weightiness. My daughter's life we're celebrating. Came home and found out that one of our close 34-year-old friends had died. Her cancer had awakened at Christmas time after a long battle. And she, she passed, leaving her husband. Four deaths in one week. Never had that in my life. And Friday morning, while we're away, Teresa is feeling, she's the one who was first notified about the fourth death, and feeling, okay, I have to celebrate my daughter's 18th birthday now. And, and feeling like I've got to push this off somehow, uh, push off this weight, this heaviness as we grieve. And God gave her Psalm 90. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. He knows every one. He's appointed a time for us to be born and He's appointed a time for us to die. Nothing catches Him off guard. Nothing. He is on the throne before we discover the pain, and He's still on the throne as we journey through the funeral. He was with me and Teresa Friday afternoon as we went in to see Craig and Lori, and I just held him and he collapsed in my arms, this dad who's lost his boy. Yet for all four deaths, it was only the first death, and the second death will not touch them. They are alive. They are alive. And today, we have a chance, due to the providence of God and giving delay, to celebrate the bigness of our God, the mercy of our God in overcoming death. Isaiah 25. Turn in your Bibles there. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days. We don't know whether we have tomorrow. 
Teach us to number them that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? How long do we have to bear under this weight? Have pity on your servants. The cry of Moses in Psalm 90 is the recognition that everyone, everyone in this world is cursed under the wrath of God due to the sin of Adam. Everyone will die. And yet there's life and there is light for those who are able to gain a heart of wisdom, to walk in the fear of the Lord. He says, satisfy us this morning. This is the verse that got, that that verse uh, 12 and 14 are the verses that God gave my wife Friday morning, readying to celebrate my daughter's birthday. She gathered us all together, opened up the Word, and gave us this passage, showing how we... We don't have to push aside the death in order to celebrate the life. It's all one big package. God's in charge of it all. We don't have to run from this. We were able to celebrate my daughter's life. And then my daughter and Teresa and I were able to go to the funeral home that evening. He's holding it all in his hands. And we need him to help us, satisfy us this morning. Oh Lord, I pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice through pain, through death. Rejoice with tears in our eyes. Rejoice knowing that you are in charge and that you are for us and not against us. Meet us now. Open up your word to us. Through Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're in the midst of a description of the day when God enters in and brings global judgment. All the world under a curse, it's said in Isaiah 24, all the world accountable to God. And we learned last week that He's going to Enter in, it says, from Isaiah's perspective, he will on that day punish all those who are high and he'll punish the kings that are low. They'll all be gathered together temporarily like prisoners in a pit. All those who are hostile to God and against his people. And then ultimately though, punishment will come. Now we come to Isaiah 25, 1. The unit here is uh, that this is the, the big structure of 24, 21 through the end of 25. The restraining of the wicked in order to preserve the oppressed. That's where we're at today. We're going to be focusing right here. The declaration of praise from the saved remnant and a honor from a bunch of those who were once rebels. POWs. They're not the saved, they're the enemy, and yet all of them will bow down and declare He is Lord as they're cast into the abyss. And then the feast, the feast for the saved and the swallowing up of death forever. And this is the sweet hope 
for moms and dads that lose children who love the Lord. So we enter in. The declaration of praise from the saved remnant and of honor from the prisoners of war. Read with me the text. Chapter 25, 1 and 2. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Plans from of old. Faithful. Sure. I will exalt you. I will praise because you've acted. You've worked out all that you've purposed. Because, and then this is unpacking those deeds, because you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. So we begin there. A declaration of praise. I'm going to exalt you. This is a person who's experienced salvation. This whole text is shaped around praise to God for deliverance over the greatest enemy death and over all the instigators who have been working it against his people throughout the ages. Praise. Exalt you. I will praise your name. Why? Why? Well, we start out by saying, because you have done wonderful things. Back in Isaiah 9-6, the child who would be born, upon whom the government of all the world would rest, he was called, this word, wonderful. Wonderful counselor, which with my wife's nudging, I unpacked and identified that that counselor focused on, in the book of Isaiah, the way that God is orchestrating all of His purposes from beginning to end. And that word for counsel is related directly to this word for plans from of old. You've done wonderful things. Plans from of old. And the name of the Son is Wonderful Counselor, wonderful planner. That's what we're seeing that. There's an echo of Isaiah 9-6 here. And for you and I, as we walk through this book, we're supposed to be thinking about earlier texts as we're reading later texts. Already we're thinking, okay, there's praise going forth because God has acted wonderfully in counsel. And This whole year, we're celebrating the servant Savior in this book. We're celebrating the gospel of Isaiah. And we're going to see in this text, there's no mention of the Messiah explicitly. But I think that Isaiah would expect us, when we see this, you've done wonderful things, plans from of old, we're supposed to think, okay, he's telling us something now that he has accomplished from Isaiah's perspective, still in the future, but something that he has been working out ultimately, through that child king, spirit-empowered redeemer that we've already been talking about. Faithful and sure. I wondered if if maybe Isaiah has a text like Genesis 3.15 on his mind. 
where you have the serpent who, through whom deception came, and with that, all the death that is in the world, all the pain, all the tears. And in that text, God declares to the serpent, there will be enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. If Satan is the instigator of all evil and ultimately death, and now one, an offspring of the woman, will rise and crush his head, purposed from of old, death would be no more. The one who brought it is now pushed aside, and instead of curse will come oodles of blessing. Is oodle, oodle a word? Blessing. Plans from of old. Look with me at verse 2. What has he done? Ultimately, through this wonder, wonderful counsel, what has he worked out? You have made the city a heap, the fortified city of man, a ruin. So, we're living in a world of people that think they're strong. We raise up giant towers reaching to the sky and they can come down quite unexpectedly in a day. Armies rise. I just got done reading The Boys in the Boat. The story of the 1936 U.S. Olympic team in their rise to the Berlin Olympics to face Germany in the finals of the nine-man, eight-man rowing and the coxswain little guy on the front of the boat. And they were head-to-head with the Nazis, and they won. And it was a testimony, a typological pointer to what would be. All the deception of Hitler would ultimately be seen, and it would come to an end, but only after much pain. Only after much pain. The city of man. Look with me back at 2410. Just just let your eye go up there. Right after saying in verse 5, the whole earth lies defiled. It's been mourning. Why? Because they're under a curse, verse 6. Why? Because they've transgressed the laws. In verse 10, it just describes it. The wasted city is broken. It seems to portray the whole world as a city. A city of man that has been crushed. And ultimately, as we're going to see, it's going to be replaced by a city of God. A tale of two cities. Desolation is left in the city. In verse 10, it says the wasted city. That's the same word that we find in Genesis 1-2, tohu. The earth was formless. Wavohu and void. Here, the wasted city, it is, it's without form. That is, it's uninhabitable. That's what God will do. He'll he'll take all the strong, fortified powers of men, all the pride, all the arrogance, and He will crush it to nothing. 
so that it's uninhabitable anymore. The cities of man crushed under the bigness of our God. Verse 2, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. And foreigner here being shorthand for all those who oppressed God's people. But now the intriguing element. Therefore, because God will wipe out all of his enemies, all their strength will be put down. Therefore, what's going to happen? The strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Now, I could be wrong here. I think the point is those who were enemies, ruthless nations, will fear the Lord. I'm not picturing this as um, those who have surrendered and are celebrating the king, but rather those who have been forced to surrender and are prisoners of war. That this is not a good kind of fear, this is a fear of terror because their judgment's coming. It, it could be different. We read, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Every one. That's both those who were on his team and those who were against him. None can stand. So I'm not, I'm not certain whether these are redeemed nations fearing God rightly or whether these are indeed, I, I'm prone to think the way that it's worded, the strong peoples, that is, Therefore, the strong peoples, that therefore pushes me back into verse 2, the foreigner's place is desolate. The fortified cities have been brought low. Therefore, those who used to live in them will recognize that you are God. That this kind of knowledge is the knowledge like Pharaoh had. At the sixth plague, I haven't wiped you out yet, but rather I raised you up for this purpose. So that in bringing one, two, three, ten plagues on you and having you be hard to the core, that I would deliver my people out of your hands so that all the world, all of them, including you, would know who Yahweh is. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? asked Pharaoh in Exodus 5.2. Who is he? And God goes on a mission to proclaim his name and to bring surrender to the heart of a rebel, of a rebel, but not a surrender of joy, but the surrender of a prisoner of war. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus was God. He humbled himself and became a man, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. He obeyed all the way, even to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus, given Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every one to the glory of God. As we're going to see, this is not universalism. Everybody gets saved. There are 
enemies who are punished, and then there's the redeemed who are going to praise in a distinctive way. But all will bring glory to God, whether through judgment or through their deliverance. By the time we get to the end of chapter 25, it's going to be absolutely clear that there is a very large group that is being included in the punishment of the serpent, which we looked at in Isaiah 27.1. The serpent, the dragon of old, the great beast, his punishment will include a great number of hordes of humans that have gone his way. There's the offspring of the woman and there's the offspring of the serpent who are children of the devil and they will, in bearing his name, that is, having his mark, I'm his, I'm not Yahweh's, go that route. So it, when I'm reading Isaiah 45 and I read that shall swear allegiance, it's, the, the difficulty is in the context, it seems to me broader than just the redeemed. But I concur, it, I would usually talk about that in the context, I, I, it seems like I would choose those words if I was talking about just those who are saved from, their, from the wrath of God, saved from the wrath rather than surrendered to Him and about to experience the wrath. So that's why I, I do say maybe, maybe the honor here is to be equated with a remnant of nations, that those who were once strong peoples have now surrendered, that those who were once part of these ruthless cities have now surrendered. We see this, if you just let your eyes turn back to chapter 24, go to verse 13, verse 12. Desolation is left in the city, the gates are battered into ruins. That's what we're talking about right now. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. Now notice that. There's nations, and then among them will be desolation. But the peoples that he's talking about are the nations who dot the earth, and among those nations is, is desolation. As when an olive is beaten, as at the gleaning when the harvest is done. So... You look down and there's all these olives still on the ground. You look down and there's all these grapes still on the ground. And there's nations that were not harvested for wrath. Amidst them is desolation. But then we turn and verse 14 says, They lift up their voices. Who is that? That's the nations. The nations that in the midst of them is desolation. The city of man put down, and yet they, the nations, lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. So that could be the group we're talking about. And if so, we're not talking about prisoners of war anymore. I mean, that's just in the previous chapter, it's testified that songs of praise are going to rise from the nations. And yet all around them will be 
desolation. So it could be the same group, and then in that sense, swearing allegiance in the Isaiah 45 text would mean what we might normally think it would mean. I'm just not certain because of the therefore in verse 3, because the foreigner's palace will be wiped down, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Therefore, cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Let's, let's just see the logic here of, of uh, Isaiah. He says in verse 3, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Why will they fear him? Why will they glorify God? Because, it says in verse 4, you've been a stronghold to the poor. A stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall. Now, let me just, let me just compare this here. I'm gonna, let me read verse 5 too. The ESV includes the first line of verse 5 with what precedes, but I think it actually goes with what follows, like the verses line. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of foreigners. As heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Let me unpack what's going on here. You've been a stronghold to the poor. The cities of man, all um, big and strong, are all being torn down. The cities of man have been against the poor. They've been pushing them down. But now God, in contrast to the cities of men, which are all going down, is now becoming a fortified wall. So that when the storm comes, you're not in a tent so that you feel it. You're behind a fortress so that the winds come and they hit the stone and they dissipate. They don't touch you in any way. That's the type of fortress we're in that we're in, in a fortress such that it's like the heat of the sun when you're out working in the yard and a cloud comes. And it holds that fire back. And it, it's reprieve, reprieve for the soul. That's, that's what God is. So it is that the song of the ruthless is put down. Now, so we see this contrast between the fortified city in verse 2 that is put down and the strong city that God is shaping. Notice the problem that we've already seen in the book. In this fortified city, the city of man... There's a lot of oppression going on. People were exalting themselves at the expense of the lowly. Woe to those, says the Lord. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. The writers who keep writing oppression. To turn aside the needy. That's our word in our text. The word here where it says it's translated as poor. Stronghold to the poor. Here it's translated the needy. From justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they, might, that they may make the fatherless their prey. 
In contrast to that, the strong city of man is put down. And now look down at chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, when God will work as a strong tower for the oppressed, this is what will be sung. Listen to the experience. We have a strong city. Cities of man, nothing. God shows up, puts them down. All the oppressors done away with. But we, we find ourselves upheld. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as bulwarks. How do you get into that city? I want to be there in the midst of the pain. I want to know the peace that God can bring. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Then he says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Therefore, trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord is an everlasting rock. In the Lord is an everlasting rock, a fortified city that cannot be broken down, so that when the storms of life come, hear me, there's still storms. But my heart is, is held up, my heart is protected, they can't get to my soul. We need to have that kind of of hope deep down inside that is able to just say, God's in charge. But these people, they're still oppressed. They're still poor. They're still distressed. And yet God is there. And how? You keep my mind in perfect peace because He trusts in you. That's how you get into the city. By trusting. By trusting. The city of God is real, and they're going to sing it. Those who've experienced it will sing it when salvation comes. Isaiah begins chapter 24 talking about the earth. In the earliest chapters of the book, which we've already walked through, All this oppression is the very thing that all those in Israel were doing to themselves. And I think the point is, by the time we get here, you, Israel, who are supposed to be my people, supposed to be different, look exactly like the rest of the nations. And because of that, you, along with them, will experience the exact same fate. And yet, again, like in chapter 2, After he says at the end of chapter 1, my people are like a garden that's not producing, therefore I'll wipe them out. And then he goes directly on and he says, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountain and the peoples will stream to it. All the nations will come to it in order to hear the teaching of the Lord. For the law will go forth from Zion. And the question is, is Israel part of that group or not? And so Isaiah says this word right after giving this vision, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Because they're not. So it's a question mark. Will you be a part of it? Will the Jews in Isaiah's day be a part of it? They will be a part of the judgment. Will they be a part of the restoration? So in chapter 24, when he lifts up the nations, 
and shows them from the east to the west praising God, he's not mentioning the Jews explicitly. It's, it's a question, will you be a part of this? And I think it's part of his sermon's power. Is he's, he's wanting to see, will they come? Will they listen? So, the... When he says the ruthless nations are put down, he's already declared at the beginning of chapter 24, it's all the earth that I'm talking about. And that includes, I believe, then Jerusalem. All the earth is under the curse. And those in Jerusalem are not saved from it. Where God is, is peace. Now, we looked at the gift. Now let's just recall... Something at the beginning of the book. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor. Who's that? The spirit-empowered king. He's the one. He'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Again, we get to this point. God's working on behalf of the oppressed. The storm is still there, but you have been a stronghold for the poor. It doesn't say the way that he was a stronghold was he didn't let them be poor. It doesn't say you've been a stronghold by letting them not have distress. It says you've been a stronghold to the needy in his distress. God has the power to remove the suffering But often, for the glory of His name, as a testament to the world, He wants to use His power not to remove the suffering, but to carry us through it and to let people see He's worth my faith, even in the midst of this pain. He has been a stronghold to the needy in their distress. And now, those people, having experienced salvation at the end of the line, are singing His praises. Let's just look at this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine full refined. He will swallow up on this mountain death. That is the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Notice that there was reproach. That means there was persecution. There were voices saying, stop trusting in the Lord in the midst of the distress. Why are you continuing to believe in Jesus? Your life is a horror. They've received reproach, and yet it says in that day, all the reproach will be cast off. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. 
The point is that waiting is worth it. And Isaiah wants us to see it. He's portraying a picture of the future beyond the distress. He's declaring to the people who are singing the song at the end, we have a strong city. He sets up salvation as bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may come in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. These are the cries of those who've been saved. Out of their pain. Because they waited through their pain in faith on a God who they believed would be faithful. And now we hear this word. It reaches us across the centuries. From 720 B.C. all the way to 2017. And the cry is, God has acted and He will act. Wait. At the end of the book, Isaiah 64, 4. Not anyone. A God like you. No eye has seen. He said, no one has seen anyone who works on behalf of those who wait for him. But the text actually says, No one has seen a God like you who works on behalf of those who wait for him. So that I just I just want us to hear that in the midst of death. Right now, Joel is singing a song. He is singing, We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates, O God, that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You, O God, are one who keep in perfect peace everyone whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then hear his voice ringing from the heavenlies. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Joel has tasted the first death. And now he is satisfied in the presence of the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. At one level, Joel is still waiting for a resurrected body. He doesn't have that yet. He hasn't experienced this second resurrection. He's experienced the first resurrection, which means to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And our waiting continues in the midst of pain. Much, much greater deficit because we're still in the place of curse and He is no longer in the place of curse. His waiting... In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And yet incomplete at the moment. He is among the throng, I believe, that Revelation 5 would portray. And this takes us into next week. Would portray have journeyed through the tribulation and are now standing before the throne 
of the Lion of the tribe of Judah and of the Lamb, declaring, worthy are you. He has made us a kingdom and priests to our God forever. And yet even there, in Revelation 5, there's waiting. That's not a picture of the eternal state of Revelation 21 and 22. That is still to come for those who are there, gathered around the throne, praising Him who is seated on high, who has worked already and yet has not completed what He set out to do. So that's the tension of Joel's waiting versus ours. We're still in the midst of an accursed world with the oppression, still feeling the distress. A different dimension of already but not yet. He is. Um, Because the time has not yet come for the ultimate culmination where death is visibly no more. He's in a much better place. He's in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise without pain and without a struggle with sin any longer or any of the fruits of that sin. He's in an extremely better place. And he's in the presence of the living God. Today, thief, you will be with me in a way that you're not with me now. In paradise. We need, to, we need to be done. Next week, um, please come back. <laughs> We're going to consider the question of timing. How what we're looking at relates to today and to tomorrow. Relates to Jesus having already disarmed all the rulers and the enemies at the cross. And the fact that though he has subjected all things to himself, it does not appear to us that he has subjected all things. And how do we understand that relationship? Father, I thank you that you are big. Son, we praise you that you have conquered death. Spirit, we we delight in the fact that you are with us always, even now bringing Christ to us. Be our strong tower amidst the distress. When the storms come, may they not touch the depth of our soul because you have been a wall of protection. Hold your own. Carry us to the end. Your sheep hear your voice. They know you. They follow you. You give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one, Jesus, can take them out of your hand. Your Father who has given them to you is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of your Father's hand, and you and your Father are one. So we praise you for holding us like that in your hands. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.